The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me are Andrew Stasiulis and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme or topic for the week, and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme, and we come on here, we have it out. It is episode 131. It is the last episode of 2023. And it was in that spirit uh, that I asked the guys to bring me new movies, newish movies, you know? Uh, we all watch a lot of movies here on the gauntlet, on and off the pod, but uh, I think it's safe to say all of us uh, are typically living in the past more than we're uh, living in the present. And so I wanted to channel that spirit and uh, talk about newish movies here in our year-end roulette, our new movie catch-up episode here at the end of the year. Um, but before we get into that and those two movies that they brought, we're also going to uh, embrace the, the year-end mindset and talk about some of our favorite films of the year, old and new. And to do that, we've brought on a very special guest, Ryland Walker-Knight. Welcome to The Gauntlet. Thank you for having me. Again. Welcome yeah, again. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Happy to be here. Yes, our pleasure. You are the only, uh, you know, I think non-Sherman guest we've, <laughs> we've ever had. So, man, maybe, maybe we should, yeah, maybe we should open the doors uh, in, in 2024, you know, stop the, the gauntlet isolation policy. But nevertheless, uh, we've got Ryland here. We saw him back in our uh, 1999 episode when we talked about Belly and bringing out the dead. What a fun time. That was. Oh, yeah. Good double bill. So we're going to uh, just go around now to start the show and just talk about some of our our favorite films of the year uh, with really no rhyme or reason. Just talk about whatever you want to talk about. Ryland, you're our guest of honor. Why don't you uh, kick us off and, and give us uh, give us something here? Yeah, set the tone. Um, well, as... You guys know, as some other people who listen to this may know, I used to be what some people call a film critic. Um, but I never liked doing top 10 lists because that's a consumption-based model of uh, art. And I started to just keep a list of like what's new to me. Like what I, I rewatch a ton of shit all the time. But like I don't care about like what was the best movie of 2023. Like what... I do like a power power rankings of my year, basically. And so I have this list of 100, 200 movies that I've watched this year in some rough approximation of, you know, how much they impacted me. And looking at it today, this afternoon, um, 
reiterated to me that it was the Peter Watkins year for me. I just oh, we love ooh, that. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. It, it uh, I had never seen anything till our mutual friend Martian, my mutual friend Eric Freeman. Um, watched uh, the war game and uh, it was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then Marsh was like, uh, yeah, you should watch all of these. <laughs> and uh, so I, that's where I started. And I watched up through uh, Monk and then I went to La Commune and I need to go back and start going back. But La Commune took me three days and um, I just think I was a little worn out by the end of it. But yeah, that, what a three days. How that. do you think they felt? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I watched it on a laptop. The communards. Yeah, I watched it on a laptop guillotining me. That was the closest I got. But oh, um, sick. Yeah, Peter Watkins was huge. I, you know, I just love anything that plays with reality and like what is real and what is a movie. Um, and that's just a very unique way to think about cinema. That. Um would be fun to try sometime i think but it's also been ruined by a lot of what is television program today actually like i think it's only gotten worse this uh mono form as it were mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah dude Wat watkins is like when you first get in him it's kind of like it's it, it really is like the matrix it's like yeah. the scene in the matrix where you suddenly are like oh my god it's all <laughs> bullshit it's yeah. all like oh god dude yeah that was so that was the big Richter scale moment for, of the year for me was discovering Peter Watkins. And uh, late in the year, I got kind of on a Kaneda Shindo vibe because that those movies are just out of control. Awesome. Kuroneko and um, Naked Island, especially, or the, the I need to watch the other ones, but those are the I watched the three that are on Criterion and they just blew me away. So that's where I'll start with. Hell yeah. Andy, why don't you? Uh... Rain a few on us here. Yeah, I think uh, as we've discussed, um, you know, um, oh man, uh, and there's so many things that I could like blame it on, but like, I mean, I, I'll just flat out say like, I really am a bad, like new movie guy. Uh, there's just so many um, things that just come and go while I'm stuck in, you know, our favorite year, 1974 or somewhere else in the past, you know, in part it's, it's, you know, due to the fact that like I do teach a history class. So I, I'm constantly looking for, for things, you know, for the avenues that are, are still like unexplored or forgotten about, um, and just, you know, ripe for rediscovery by, by myself and, and other people who turn me on to cool shit. So yeah, I'm, I'm just, always in the past. And I would say that the most, the things that have stuck with me the most, uh, throughout this year, just looking back on this year specifically are yes, mostly older films, but just a few off the top of my head that were, were new to me. And, and I, um, I, I really had a blast with, um, I, I think one, uh, partly just because of the, the, the current climate, the times that we live in, but I think the, a, a film that would do a lot of people, a lot of good to, to visit or revisit if they've already seen it, um, would be, uh, the Soviet director, Mikhail Rahm's film, Triumph Over Violence from 1965. It's, uh, I guess you could say a documentary, almost like an essay film, really exploring the sort of like the, the genesis of, of fascism 
particularly like, you know, Nazism. And uh, yeah, it's just a really like startling and very powerful film and one uh, well within the the Soviet montage tradition. Uh, I was really, really, really taken by Rom's uh, triumph over violence. Um, I'm a big fan of Francesco Rossi. Uh, and uh, this year I, I finally got to see his film Illustrious Corpses from 1976. Pretty close to 74, but not quite on the mark. Uh, this is just a great uh, dour paranoid, sad Italian investigation film uh, about a, an old cop who is um, uh, embroiled in uh, a series of homicides that are taking part uh, taking place in in and around like Italy where all these like judges are being murdered. And uh, of course, you know, it goes all the way to the top, folks. Illustrious Corpses is a, a very, very, very awesome film. Um, another film from the 70s that uh, I saw for the first time this year, partly because of uh, um, our our uh, trip with uh, this filmmaker on the podcast, but I saw uh, Pierre Schundorfer's film The Drummer Crab from 1977, which uh, I think we might have even mentioned before is a really great double feature with uh, No or the Vain Glory of Command. Uh, it's a, a sort of journey through France's history of of 20th century imperialism with a bunch of, of you know, um, sort of cry macho types on a, on a French naval vessel telling stories about Indochina and, and the Middle East and, and, and France. It's a, it's a, it's an awesome movie too. Uh, I really liked. And speaking of the Navy, the newest film that I really, really enjoyed would be the Swan Song, the final feature film of William Friedkin's career, the Kane mutiny court martial. If you can get your hands on it, folks, Definitely worth checking out. I think uh, he he still had it right to the end. I I really enjoyed his take on that story. Um, and then I'm gonna throw out look because it's just a hey, you know, hey, uh, it ain't just movies. We all watch everything. Uh, two two bits of TV that I was what? totally engrossed in throughout the year. Uh, and one would be this was the. The, the finally in my life I was able to sit down and watch the entirety of homicide life on the streets the great uh, police procedural that was basically the genesis for the wire David Simon was was instrumental in in helping that show become what it was and it's where he sort of cut his teeth and learned a lot of lessons that he would take on to some other great uh, shows and and miniseries that that he would do but folks uh, do yourself a favor uh, invest in it get the the box set and just sit down and 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 dive into it and very timely as well because rip Andre Brower he is the star of that show and there are many many stars on that show but wow I fell in love with Andre Brower because of his role as Frank Pembleton on that series. And then look, you know, uh, I, uh, I'm also a, a bit of an anime nerd and, uh, this year brought the end, the final sort of, uh, the, the finale of attack on Titan. And let me just tell you folks, this is one of the greatest anti-war statements I've seen in media. It is so 
powerful. It's so engrossing. I mean, it's anime. Keep that in mind. But the show did some really, really interesting things with um, its view of war, militarism, nationalism, the way in which we sort of get sucked up by it in our societies. And the show does some really clever things as it progresses and twists everything around. And by the end of the series, makes you feel like uh, a really, really, really big piece of shit for taking part in any of the, the spectacle. So yeah, those would probably be just off the, the, the sort of quick top of my head, the things this year that, that are really, really um, stayed with me. Thanks, Andy. Ryan, what about you? Well, I was trying to think about if there was even a favorite 2023 movie I had. I'm also kind of like Andy. I have a harder time keeping up with the newer stuff. It's similar for books. Like, I'm always afraid to read books that were written in the last, like, 10 years. It's it's more strict with books. I need it to be, like, vetted. Films, I mean, easygoing. But, like, yeah, I don't... I was surprised at how little new stuff I, I've seen. But one, one film, a little bit of a gray area in terms of those, like, festival release dates and, like, when the movie counts. Pacifiction, what's your guy's vote? Is that a this year movie or is that a last year movie? I mean, if I saw it this year, I count it for this yeah. year. And I feel like we did. Yeah, so, yeah. to me, yeah. that feels like the movie of the year for me uh, in terms of a newer film. I just love that movie and I love talking about it with you guys. I feel like it unlocked so much of it for me. It already felt like a really rich text. That that movie is just so cool. I think about it all the time. And he just announced his new movie, Albert Sarah, and it sounds nuts. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And otherwise, in terms of movies that were this year, I mean, I like back to back saw two really awesome movies at the Chicago Film Festival when I visited. Most of my favorites I'm thinking about all kind of relate to experiences. And for the newer films, it was Evil Does Not Exist and then The New Hong in Water. Seeing both of those at the festival was a blast. And I was quite taken by both of them. The, they are really striking, beautiful, multifaceted works that I still think about pretty often. Anytime I squint my eyes a little bit or I have a hard time focusing on something, I think about Hong Sang Su's In Water and then my heart feels a little bit warmer. But, you know, I think for me this year really, this was like a big Portugal year for me, <laughs> both because of the experience of going to see my buddy, but then deciding to dive into all that stuff and i watched a ton of um manuel de Oliveira films and we all were quite taken by no or the vain glory of command that was this Best year movie ever made yeah i mean that was th that was this year which is crazy to think about yes. and that i mean that was pretty seismic i feel as though for for all of us but yeah in me particular yeah. i was like whoa okay this is the real shit and it, it it was invigorating you know it's just like one of those things that remind you like why you like movies at all so i watched like a lot of his stuff and really liked it of course you know Jao Cesar Montero was this year's Jerry Lewis for me in terms of like every year i feel like i, I get like one or two filmmakers that i become like truly enamored with really connect with become obsessed and devour their like most of their entire body of work and Jao Cesar Montero this year w was that guy love that sicko love his movies uh totally obsessed all of them I they were like basically all five baggers when I look at my lists of things I like rated very highly this year I see that I just was like gold star gave him little pins for for basically every single one of his films I saw but I think in terms of like film experiences 
I think one of the most funs also related to Portugal was getting to see Texasville in Lisbon on 35mm, both like the irony of seeing a movie called Texasville when I was on vacation in Europe, and then also that the print itself was a beat-up print from Spain, so it had burned-in Spanish subtitles, and then they also had the digital subtitles in Portuguese below the film, but they were not in sync with each other. So I had, like, flashing text that I only half understood throughout a film that was in English, and that was pretty funny. That was, like, kind of nice. When I look back at some of the other stuff, like Molly and I drove to Portland to go and see May-December to see the print of that. That was a lot of fun. That's another, like, new film that... I, I really loved. Um, Marsh joked that this was like the, I'm like now getting into middling uh, or the not middling cinema, but that I'm like, I like normal movies now. I'm like pivoting yeah. away when I watch new Todd stuff. Todd Haynes' middle brow pilled you with yeah. Dark Waters and, and May, December. And right. now you're like watching the holdovers going like, I thought it was good. Ryan, are you okay? Are you okay? What I know. happened to you? Yeah, I watched you know? like the holdovers and Gone Girl and like pretty pro- close proximity, and I'm like, yeah, pretty good. Like these movies. And the I think five years ago, I would have been like, get this shit out of my yeah. face. After all these years, he's coming around to normal yeah. movies. Yeah. yeah. Guys, folks. For all the times I have like, you know, been come in here and recommended something, you know, like that, just a good three star movie, and, and Ryan just kind of like, his eyes glaze over while I'm talking, you know, like it's so beneath him. Like, yeah, we're all growing. Welcome. You know, know? I'm not going to be vindictive about it. Like, let's, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk three star movies, man. Yeah. Nice, nice three bags of popcorn. Yeah. So that's pretty much that. I would say that's like my year in review. And when you were in town and we watched that guy get sucked up by that woman in, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty no, Notable, I would say for birth. sure. Yeah, th- some of the most notable twelve seconds I think I've ever seen uh, yeah. in in all of film. Also, the planes. Uh, the other new movie I loved. I forgot about that. Very good. You know me. I love a, a movie that's just like locked down in the backseat of a car for three hours. That's all I need. It's that that makes me feel good. Great film. I thought you were going to talk about Plane, which you know also we both like that liked, one. So different, yeah. different vibe for sure. But but two good plane films this year. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Are you done? Are yeah, you I'm done? I'm done. I could keep going, but <laughs> Well, we, you know, we can we can come back around oh, to you. Okay. You know? You don't have to get it out all in one go. Sure. Um, That's what I got. What about you, Marsh? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I guess thinking about like the the filmmakers that I sort of ex- experienced a lot of this year, uh Choi Hark, I finally watched a couple of the really, like, landmark ones, of course. Uh, The Green Snake from 1993 and The Blade from 1995 are uh, two of the most, like, formerly daring, outrageous movies I've ever seen. And I I loved every second uh, of both of them. I mean, yeah, they're, they're crazy. It's, like, the kind of stuff that you just go, like... Uh, cinema's just being invented, you know, that kind of that kind of vibe. And I also watched uh, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, his one of his early films uh, about a bunch of teenagers who just start indiscriminately bombing 
the city uh, and it's like this this anarchist masterpiece and it is extremely unpleasant and violent and having seen that it sort of like explains a lot about Choi Hark that uh, I maybe didn't understand before I was just grasping at it's like you go back to the the first statement he ever really made, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, I get it. This guy's pissed off, you know, he's so mad. Um, and I love that stuff. So that was that was a pleasure to, to finally see that stuff. I also spent uh, a significant uh, amount of time in the uh, Marcel Ophel's documentary minds this year uh just in terms of sheer volume i watched three of his films and they're all well over three hours uh sorrow and the pity of course is the classic one from 1969 looking back at clermont ferrand during the occupation uh as well as memory of justice and hotel terminus the life and times of klaus barbie Uh, i don't know what got into me but i watched those in like rapid succession and i don't know you know it's it's one of those things the talking head you know so abused so abused in the history of cinema especially the 21st century documentary but going back to a classic talking heads documentary like sorrow and the pity reminds you of how valuable documentary is when you're just like interviewing people uh, and recording history in that way and not in a bullshit way to fabricate a narrative, but to actually explore people's experiences and emotions and feelings. Uh, And that's what Ophels does. And it's funny to watch uh, over time. He sort of becomes more present in the films and he's kind of like a proto Michael Moore uh, kind of figure because he's just like this doddering fool. But like he's also grilling Nazis, you know, like it's a very funny thing. And also, of course, him being uh, the son of one of the great fictional filmmakers is is doubly ironic. There's even a part where his wife's like, why don't you make like a movie like Minnelli or something, you know, <laughs> just like, why don't you make, why are you doing this to us? You know, <laughs> like the family. Um, and that was, yeah, that was great. You know, I mean, it's heavy stuff, but uh, just really, really valuable documents of uh, people lying about what happened during world, <laughs> world war two, mostly. Um I concur uh, with Ryan in terms of, uh, I think evil does not exist. It's maybe my favorite thing, a new movie I saw this year, at least one of, and it was certainly nice seeing it at the festival. But, uh, Again, you know, he took a, he took all that goodwill from from Drive My Car and made and just a completely baffling uh, and very entertaining movie, and and I mean it in the best way, right? It's it's not hand holding you, it is topical, but like not in the way you would expect it to be, uh, and he's just great, especially at long scenes the art of the long scene i mean hollywood doesn't even have scenes anymore let alone like a 20 minute scene like the sort of like town hall meeting in evil does not exist it's it's a master class it's yeah. as engaging as uh the most engaging like wiseman town hall meetings you know and it's completely scripted uh and just perfectly controlled it's really fun stuff. Yeah, I forgot to mention about it. Someone I work with saw it at New York, and Hamaguchi was there. And he, when he was asked about like what this film is for him, he said he didn't even really know. He said, but <laughs> I, the only thing I know for certain is that I'm not tired of watching it. And he like sat and watched it with them in New York. 
And I think that like that captures something so beautiful and cool about that movie <laughs> that he's just like, he's watching it wherever it goes. Cause he's like, what is this thing that I made? And that's what the movie feels like. I think. Definitely. Yeah. It's play. awesome. Yeah. You guys check it out. I mean, I'm still behind. I haven't seen wheel. I haven't seen wheel or Asako or the other one. Uh, Damn. Yeah. Did know. you drive I'm the car slacking. or did not? I did no. drive the car. Okay. Uh, that's great. Sure. Um, yeah. More of a happy hour guy. Yeah. I'm a happy yeah. hour guy. That, that's that. I mean, I just, I'm like, I'm like the opposite of you guys. Like I'm the really bad cinephile. I don't watch enough old movies. I just go see Oppenheimer four or five times. And then <laughs> like, I got to really think about this one. <laughs> um, but I'm actually about to go see what I hope is going to be my favorite movie of 2023, which is Ferrari by Michael Mann. And uh, vroom, vroom. I'm looking forward to it. But thanks for having me, guys. I hope you guys have fun oh, yeah. talking about the Bay Area. Um, oh, yes. Yes. And, uh, we'll do it in your honor. Thank you. All right. I look forward to listening. All right. To thanks for coming on, buddy. Enjoy Ferrari. Thanks. Have a good one, guys. <laughs> good right. to see Peace. you. Bye. I do want to. What, what do I want to shout out? So, uh, a couple long movies. I know Ryan and I shared this experience, but if you like us, like long movies, now that Eight Deadly Shots has been restored, I, oh, think, yeah. that's a, I think that's a must-see, the Finnish miniseries uh, about, uh, well, gee, alcoholism and, and labor and, and sadness, you know? But it's a really, really rich long, uh, in-depth portrait of, of humans, you know, just really, it really affected me, you know, and I was, mm -hmm. I was unclear how I felt about it at certain points throughout the journey. Uh, but it's something I keep going back to in my mind. It's a, it's a very haunting experience, very real and raw, uh, experience for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice watching them just like chop wood though, you know, yeah, in that and in Evil Does Not Exist, yeah. a lot of just like wood chopping. And I think we can all agree that that's like one of the best things you can film. Mm -hmm. I'd say so. Any uh, any other final notes on our recap here? I know we could actually go on forever. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you the worst movie I saw in 2023. The worst movie I saw in 2023 was Extraction 2 with Chris Hemsworth. Oh, my God. Russo Brothers retired. Ooh, I they mean, did that? They didn't direct it, but they're like, yeah, I think what, they wrote it. it. Yeah, that's yeah. all over it. Like, horrible, horrible, horrible action movie. Like, the state... Of American action cinema is is oh it is in a it's it's dreadful right now in my opinion but you know I got lucky and didn't see too many films I really reviled but the, that new Indiana Jones movie is really bad <laughs> yeah saw that on the plane and I think that most sucks. people agree <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm so like in, you know I'm so insulated or, or isolated from so much mainstream cinema and have been for so long you know when I watched uh, Sonic the Hedgehog with my nieces I was like is this what movies are like now you yeah know? And of course it is and it you know I, I don't get to spend a lot of time with stuff like that and uh, I gotta say it wasn't pleasant no uh, it was not nice for me I, yeah just the other day I felt like so invigorated because I didn't have any clue what this thing called Madam Web 
is <laughs> and that like <laughs> felt really nice because molly has the same thing she's like what is it and i'm like i think it's like a lady spider-man and she's like it's called fucking mad <laughs> yeah there's a good slip spider-man <laughs> that's what they should call it madam webb's oh, the stupidest Bebo name i've ever Spider-Man. heard <laughs> so is that funny. the dakota johnson thing because i only know it in the context of people making fun of the trailer being like what is going I, on with this i mean i her. only yeah i only know of it i just yeah yeah well you know we, we should focus on things that are good for our health and i do want to mention uh pod related but this year you know i i drove home from vacation at the lake house in indiana to see the quince tree sun which we covered on the pod uh and i had to see uh the print of it so i drove several hours to see it and then i saw it and i woke up and, and drove right back to uh the lake house and it was yeah. obviously worth it yeah um so that was amazing and i also again pod related got to see the new world on 35 which was a yeah. very unique treat of course excellent mm-hmm. yeah well uh I asked you to bring new films that you wanted to see, had been meaning to see, or were just discovering that you wanted to see, and that was that was the prompt. And uh, you certainly delivered in two very different ways. <laughs> um, but I appreciate it. We got a bit of a uh, American independent, quote-unquote, cinema uh, double feature here. And... Uh, well, just uh, tell me tell me about your films. Andy, you did have the earlier of the two, so why don't you bring it on out? That that that's true. I mean, I should say like I uh I tried very hard to stick to mm-hmm. 2023 like he arbitrarily, did. Yeah. like to I, to I will vouch for him. He did. Ryan and I had had sort of talked and and I, again, last week you had said, "Hey, it doesn't have to be 2023, it could be 2021, 2022." So, but I was like the one that was like, nah, let's stick to 2023. And then I was like the first guy to bail on it, you know, uh, partly because of my exploration of, you know, just what do I want to watch? And like, I gave Ryan a whole bunch of titles, but, but then I, I just, you know, I came across something like you had said that you've been meaning to watch. And, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of movies that, I'm kind of now thinking, I guess I could watch this. And I had to go back to like, what do I really want to watch? Like, what have I been meaning to get into? And there is, I would say, like, I guess I, I think it's appropriate to call them like a, a, a team of filmmakers whose work has been like popping up a lot for me over the last year, uh, particularly. And um, there's a, a, a critic that I follow who is a very big champion of theirs, but also a bunch of my students have been checking out this group's work. And, uh, you know, it's just been like, ah, man, I, I, I got to get in. Everything I've heard about it seems to be right up my alley. And, and so I just said, fuck it, let's do it. I, I said to Ryan, I want to go with these guys. And the one that I want to jump into is not their most recent, but it is a recent film. It's from 2021. This is a film by the, uh, the creative uh, partnership of Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh. And the film is Metal Detector Maniac. So... 
Um, I guess just a little bit more context. Uh, Farley and Roxburgh are, um, you know, some, I, I guess you could call them really like no budget filmmakers. And uh, they have described themselves as sort of backyard filmmakers. And they've been working uh, together for, for quite a while. Um, and Ryan had told me that he'd seen one of their earlier films. Uh, this is when, after a sort of like several year kind of hiatus, they got back together and, and it seems like they've just been pumping out a lot of new material, like multiple films a year. And in part, that is because they really do just sort of get their friends and family together and boy, uh, <laughs> just seem like they have a whole lot of fun and this film being my first certainly confirms that because I had a hell of a time uh, Metal Detector Maniac follows uh, Matt Farley and Tom Scalzo who are basically playing themselves sort of loosely fictionalized versions of themselves they are in this film a couple of shall we say uh, huckster academics they are musicologists. They are music professors at some New England, you know, small liberal arts university, and they have sort of a, a, a good con that they're pulling. They want to go on sabbatical, uh, sabbatical where they get paid by the university to, in their mind, you know, write a new album, a, a new uh, a musical album. They're gonna, they're gonna get back into the music industry after sort of leaving it for for several years. But really, it's just an excuse. They will quickly admit to to play basketball or engage in what they like to call pre-writing activities. You know, where you sort of take part in good, vigorous, you know, uh, pursuits other than writing. But the the goal is, of course, to to, to get the creative juices flowing. Uh, while they are pre-writing, playing basketball in the park, they observe a man with a metal detector, and instantly they uh, suspect he's up to no good. He's hiding in plain sight while engaging in all kinds of nefarious activities. They then uh, launch a, 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 a citizen sleuth investigation into this man and his, uh, his his entire existence. We will we will learn throughout the course of the film. Uh, all the while, they, as a uh, sort of like musical duo, have a kind of like Greek chorus going on where they are singing about pretty much anything and everything they get up to and the metal detector maniac gets up to. It is a uh, descent into uh, some of the most chill paranoia you will probably ever find. Uh, I was laughing hysterically at, at many points in this film. Uh, yeah, look, I, I'd been meaning to get into their work. Everyone has said these guys are hilarious, they're funny, they're charming. They are a, a, a group of people who, whose, 
whose enthusiasm is infectious, and and I I caught the bug big time with this. Being my first experience with them, I was was absolutely blown away by it. Um, it is one of the best films I've seen in a very long time, which is appropriate, I suppose, for our best of year interview because man for the very tail end of 2023 i gotta add this one uh before we even get into a deep conversation about it it is definitely on my list of uh favorite watches favorite discoveries for the year so that is a film we're gonna have a i think a blast picking apart metal detector maniac thank you very much andy ryan why don't you tell us about the film you brought my instincts were a little bit different, even though your prompt was, you know, pick something you've really been meaning to watch, something new that's out there that you want to check out. And I was looking at a lot of different stuff, obviously, and I was looking first at stuff I wanted to see, and a lot of it wasn't available. I feel like a lot of the stuff I missed the past couple of years, I I had caught up with, or I, was, I wasn't I was sure about like what kind of conversations they would bring. Um, I was really close to picking that new sensory ethnography film about like the human body, like the cameras uh, digging around inside everybody. And I was, I was like, yeah, that could be fun, but I don't know if that's like the mood I'm in for. And then I just started thinking more about my general relationship with newer stuff. And I feel like with every year that goes by, I watch less of it there's it takes as i mentioned it takes a while for me to see some new things so i thought you know why don't i i challenge myself a little bit and pick something that i think i probably wouldn't normally come across because it checks off some of the boxes of things that are like easy for me to kind of avoid one of which was is i picked a film that was uh picked up by a24 it's usually that that doesn't like normally disqualify a film by any means of, of its quality, but you know it's 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 not usually on my typical uh, routine list of things I interact with all that often. Is this our first A twenty four film? I think it might be. That's yeah. also what I was thinking too. I'm like, well, we've never done A twenty four on the pod, you know. <laughs> So I was like, maybe we could bring that in. I knew it was like a Sundance darling. That's also like usually a pretty big red flag for me. Just like the Sundance genre is like not normally my thing. And I knew it was a first feature by a really young filmmaker. And it uh, was an adaptation of a short. And again, these are like usually things that I just often find myself like not really checking out for no real reason. I, I don't know. Um, Most of them are bad, you can say. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. And I heard this one was good. And I and I knew that Richard Brody in particular really liked oh. it and, and wrote like a nice piece about how it reinvigorates the close up in American cinema. So I thought, why not? Let's do it. And I picked a film that did come out this year from 2023 called Earth Mama, directed by Savannah Leaf. I mentioned that it was her first feature and that she's not very old. Uh, she's actually only just a couple days older than me, I learned, which is kind of neat. So I, you know, doff my cap to Savannah because uh, I probably couldn't make a film as, as proficient and as, as tight as this one. The other thing that's like kind of unique that I learned, I didn't read a ton about the film. I know usually like newer films have so much more written about them and I like didn't take the time to do it because I just wanted to like see what this thing was. But I did learn that Savannah uh, is not from America. She's from Great Britain and that she also was uh, an Olympian. 
she participated in volleyball in the 2012 Summer Olympics for Great Britain, which I think is like very funny and I like think that's so cool. <laughs> it makes me think about like Wiseman being a lawyer and then making movies and here we got like an Olympian that goes to make stuff. So I like yeah. that. The Jacques to Auteur pipeline is real. It's happened a few times. You know? Yeah, yeah. So pretty neat. And yeah, the, the film, do, I mean, doesn't... Uh, linger on athleticism or anything like that and instead tells like a well i guess a little bit it tells a uh, it tells a very heavy story in the classic american independent social realist tradition about a woman named gia who is pregnant with her third child her two other children are currently in foster care and she has extremely limited access to her children because she's currently in recovery for for drug addiction and she's only allowed to visit her two children you know i think it's like once a week and for an hour at a time it's really really rough much of the film details a lot of the systemic indignities that young black women are having to face throughout this this bureaucracy and in particular with child care and having access to your children i mean when we when we watched the film molly at the end said like god i, I didn't realize i'd be having to like go to work again today because molly is a school psychologist and this is a lot of her work is like trying to help kind of assess these sorts of things like in a school environment and so like I, it was I, it was a heavy film and it's like I, I feel like it's a disservice to just talk about what like the plot description of it is because it has like this really raw power that did strike me and I also think that because of it there are a few key things that I think really set this film apart and why I was so taken by it one of which is that it's a period piece and it doesn't say like exactly what year it is, but it's a film that doesn't have a lot of contemporary technology. It's like flip phones. She's she has a phone that like is pay by the minute, and that's something that's like really intense throughout the film, where it's constantly counting down like how much how many more minutes she has on her cell phone. But there's like tube TVs. No one's using FaceTime like that. I think that was like a big part of the decision. Maybe if I'm just gonna like make some assumptions, especially with the foster care situation, because she has some phone calls with her kids. But like if this was present day this would all be over FaceTime and and there's something about this film setting it in the very recent past both for her job she's like a photographer at a mall and that's like these are like gigs that basically don't exist anymore it allowed for a lot of like interesting scenes to play out because of that so I thought that in that in particular was really cool and I also think that formally it, it's really neat because this is just like the kind of classic social film that probably would have been shot handheld and this whole film is locked down. It's on dollies. It's shot on 16 millimeter. It looks really nice. And I think that it, it brings something new to the table because of that. Uh, for a film that like you'd think would have kind of the style of a Dardenne's film to make it feel real. I like that so much of this film feels so real because of how crafted it is. So I don't know. I mean, I was trying to even think about how to really introduce this film, and I might just leave it at that because I'm curious to hear how you both reacted to it. But it's not these kinds of films, Sundance films, I don't always encounter as much, and I think this one transcends a lot of that stuff. And I think it's and it's nice to see uh, Woodbine again, Gauntlet Hero. Oh, yes. Um, having a little cameo in this. I thought that was, that was awesome. Uh, so yeah, yeah, we'll go over some of the other plot particulars a little later, but that's Savannah Leaf's Earth Mama from 2023. 
Thank you very much, Ryan. Well, you know, uh, I don't know what I'm going to say because I can't do the sort of normal thing where we just kind of like you know, talk about their relationship to to the theme. <laughs> but I could talk about, I guess, my experiences first, first and foremost uh, with Metal Detector Maniac. This was my third film by them that I've seen. Uh, I've seen Local Legends, and I've also seen Heard She Got Married from the same year as this. Uh, and I've watched them with Kyle over the past year, and, and we loved them. We have such a good time watching them. Uh, so I was, of course, very stoked uh, that you picked it. And uh, it certainly, uh, I knew what to expect, and, and it certainly didn't let me down. Although it is hilarious because, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, it is... And this is, of course, the vibe of a lot of their movies. They're the same thing over and over again with, like, slight variations almost, like Hong Sang-soo or whatever. Right. Uh, but this is, like, the exact same film as Heard She Got, as Heard she got Married from the same year uh, in which the the IMDb description is, stop me if you've heard this one before. I haven't. A, mus- a musician is suspicious of his mailman. Now, if you were to describe this film, you would say two musicians are suspicious of a metal detector man, you know? And so it's very funny to me where I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess I didn't expect it to be like that much uh, the same. But of course, it's it's its own thing, you know? But uh, I had a really good time with it. And yeah, Ryan, I was I was looking forward to your uh, to your explanation uh, because, of course, when I saw you pick the film again, I'm like, Ryan's picking a Sundance A24 film. Like, what's going? You know, we talked about it earlier. He, he likes middlebrow films now, so like maybe this was the next step. You know, he's gonna be a become a Sundance gremlin. You know? oh, oh. Kill me before that happens. Pull the plug. He's already booking his Airbnb in Park City. You know, like. Oh my God! What's going on with this guy? Uh, but no, yeah, I, I uh, of course, I, I, I kept an open mind, and I, I think it's an interesting film, and I think there is, you know, I don't want maybe don't want to go immediately into what I thought was sort of a, a deficiency, but I think it does speak to a lot of contemporary films uh, that sort of, it, how do I put this? The character is sort of like difficult to access. And mm-hmm. I don't mean this in the sense that like I'm a, a white guy from Chicago and, and she's like a pregnant black woman from from Oakland. But like cinematically, we have really like no interiority and she's a very kind of like difficult character, you mm-hmm. know? And I again, I don't think this is necessarily a deficiency, but she's a hard character to love. And on the one hand, I really appreciated that. But on the other... I felt like I want I wanted more interiority because I sure. do think she's very fascinating and she's very interesting. And maybe it's not interiority, maybe it's brevity, maybe it's it's something else. But uh, to your point, I think the the sort of formal approach to this film kept me consistently engaged, like throughout. And I think it it expresses a lot of its ideas through the form more so than like the character per se. Yeah. A lot of the time, which is an interesting thing I didn't expect necessarily to see. I would expect a Sundance film to be more of a, a story first wannabe Hollywood film. And, and that's not the route this film takes at all. No. And I think that 
Brody is talking about that a little bit. This might be like a little bit of an in between the lines thing, but I his piece in the New Yorker is nice because he talks about how so much of that characterization and that power and that interiority is is coming from the close ups and not from other things happening in the film. Because yeah, if we're thinking about maybe some of it's like the things you you could call deficiencies. Like I I will say I didn't know it was an adaptation of a short until afterwards but i was suspicious of it while i was watching it um i kept thinking though i guess in hindsight may, does it say in the opening credits am i just like making this up or does it say it maybe it says the in end? the credits it's based on something i don't know if it's at the beginning or end. oh uh, okay so maybe this is like me making up a memory but like regardless when i was watching it i was thinking like oh this feels like a short that got expanded into a feature which is a very typical journey for Sundance, yeah. you know, first 100%. time features like this. Yeah, right? yeah. To be fair. Totally. No, and I don't want to hold it like against the movie or anything, but like, because I don't even feel like it's padded. It's more that it, it, it coasts on a similar rhythm for so much of it. But I do think like the performance is so strong and it was like very deserving of all of those close ups. And I, I felt as though like that was what got me through that quality of it. Like that lack of interiority being exterior sure. in the film that we just like spend times looking at it from so many different angles up close. I think too, if, if I can be honest, um, trying to, to, to speak to this, this feeling um, it's that this is probably one of our most cursed double features I think we've ever programmed in the sense yes. that you, you know, you want to talk about a vibe shift between the yeah. two experiences of watching these films. Like I, after I watched both of them, I, I just thought, man, we're, we're really doing a disservice to sort of both of these films when you try to bring them into like a direct sort of conversation as we do with many of our double features, you know? And again, I think this idea of like interiority or a feeling of sort of like a, a lack thereof <laughs> is because when you watch Metal Detector Maniac, I mean, these guys are literally like stream of consciousness singing every <laughs> thought yeah. that pops into their fucking heads at any time of the day. I mean, right. they, they will shift mid conversation, mid song sometimes to, to some other flight of fancy that, that, that is just kind of popping in there. Right. I mean, these guys are wearing everything on their, their, their t-shirts, so to speak. And, and yeah, you know, I think that's what sort of makes it hard when you put two films like these, like in such close proximity. I mean, they just are radically, radically different experiences, not just from from like the tone, but even, you know, from from the like the nature of like why they were created, where they were created, how they were created, and and the purpose that they they serve in in the cinematic world that that we all live in. So so I think, yeah, I mean, like that was kind of my feeling as well. And again, I kept trying to, to say to myself, like, I cannot hold it against a film like Earth Mama that that I'm I'm experiencing some of these thoughts and some of these feelings, you know, because it's like I just watched a fucking Farley Roxburgh joint. And I mean, it's like my head is spinning from that, you know? I mean, it is kind of like a... a 
an amazing accidental commentary on race in America, though, you have to admit, because on the one hand, it's like Gia's entire journey uh, being poor, being in recovery, being through all these programs like she has no time and and Farley and Scalzo. I mean, these guys have nothing but time. Oh, my and, God. And I was thinking about that, dude, too. The fact that they have so much time leads to their paranoia and their suspicion uh, is amazing. Because, again, to me, that's like white America. This, you know, it's like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not just them, but like everybody, you know, like everybody in this, you know, this as they call it, their sleepy bedroom, you know, New England town that they <laughs> yeah. live in. Right. I mean, like, yeah, it's it is a total total disparity you know economically socially culturally in in you know 2023 to look at these two these two yeah uh, communities and two experiences of life you know i mean just just the fact that you have so many characters in uh metal detector maniac kind of also call each other out for that you know like the racket of middle class america or whatever and like you know, these guys are certainly not like wealthy people by any stretch of the imagination, but everyone seems to have a nice, cushy, comfortable existence, you know, where they where they live. Man, that's so good, Marsh, because you <laughs> it's funny that we didn't lead with that, because I like how you said, like, oh, I can't you know, it's it's hard for the theme to really put these together. But we're thinking about time. We're thinking about right now. Movies coming out now. Wh- what does it say about time right now? And that is so much of Earth Mama is just no time time being quantified running out of time she she's not able to make enough money because she doesn't have enough time to get more hours at her job all her time is being quantified by her pay by minute cell phone she is running out of time literally i I even in my introduction i failed to bring up like the central conflict of this film which is she's afraid that her third child is also going to be taken away from her and so she's having to make a decision with clearly a limited amount of time she's very 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 pregnant throughout the whole film that maybe she has to do an open adoption where she's going to give her child up to adoption for another family that she'll also be able to visit and still like somehow be a part of that child's life and she's running out of time to make that decision and that is the exact opposite with metal detector maniac how all these things just spiral like out because it's almost as though the thing i liked about metal detector maniac and its take on paranoia with kind of we're just like i'm kind of spoiling the end of the movie here but it's like they're they're coming up with all of these absurd theories that all end up being true that's the joke right it's like this long extended joke where it's like every angle they're looking at it from is so obviously fantastical and out of line and just like not the way things are and then they all end up being exactly (laughs) the way things are like word for word which to me is just one of the funniest jokes i've seen in a movie in a very long time i really 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 like this movie a lot um and but i do think that it is like a natural that's the plot that would come out of this environment of these filmmakers that have nothing but time. And they got everyone in town who also has time to just like participate in this. And these films are from two different worlds. Yeah. And they cast themselves as, as the heroes. And I think that's of course, like why it's so funny is yeah. You know, like in, in a Hollywood film, you're not going to be allowed to, uh, build up a story like this for the sake of <laughs> the last like 20, 
ish minutes of this movie, right? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> you could only do this with no supervision, like to take it to that length. And it, it reminds me, like, I've, I've talked about this before, but like, some of my favorite Chabral movies to me are, are the same thing. They're just a joke. They just build and build and build to just this amazing punchline. And sometimes that can just be like such a great movie experience, you know? And I think this movie is in that tradition of you can't believe it. And then it just like twists the knife at the end, you know, like, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like, again, you know, to, to, to also be fair, you know, like, yeah, they, they, they have time on their hands to do this, but, but it's also like a tough road for them. I mean, again, compared to something that let's say comes out of like a Sundance lab that suddenly just gets like money and resources and connections and distribution just immediately handed to it before it's before it's out the door, you know, before, before it's even been, been shot. I mean, these guys have to rely on, on like the, the, the limited time that people can donate to produce these things, to make these things. I mean, yes, people have some free time, but from what I read about their, the, the, how they make these movies, it's like they pretty much just shoot them on the weekends when people do have a couple hours here or there to, to, to help them because they can't pay, you know, tons of money for, for, you know, actors and, and locations and, and everything. I mean, Marsh, you've, you've seen more of them than I have, but I've, I saw interviews with them and, and like they very knowingly joke about how many locations that they recycle. Cause they're like, yeah, we're literally shooting in our, our, our neighborhood, our, our backyard. When you watch this movie and that movie, you're going to see the same places, you know, agony Ridge in this film is, you know, Woodman's park in the other film or whatever it's called, you know, I mean, they, they are the, the epitome of like the DIY filmmaker mm -hmm. and all the actors are the same in all the movies too. Yeah. At least the recent ones there, it's all the same people. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think again, to, to put people in that position, I mean, again, talking about time, like the pressures of time, you know, like, uh, man, for them to achieve what they, they have certainly in this film, which is the only one that I can speak to, but looking at what other people say and, and you know, uh, how other films of theirs are like discussed. It's like, if it's anything like this, it's like, it's exactly like this. Right. And that's what it sounds like. It's exactly <laughs> like this. And it's like, God damn dude. Like I, I found this to be one of the most inspiring like watches I've had in a long time. And maybe, yeah, that's, that's also rooted in the fact that I, you know, like, like you guys, I mean, all of us, we've been these kinds of filmmakers. None of mm. us have ever gotten, you know, any money to, 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 to make something. And we've done that. We've called on our family. We've called on our friends. We've called on each other to just donate time to do something like this. And it's incredible to, to, to see it when it, when it comes off like this, just so funny and so charming and so engrossing, you know, I mean, it, it really is like a, uh, I mean, I'm gushing obviously because I loved it, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. The, when I'm thinking about the limited amount of things I had in mind about these films and conversation with each other because of how radically different experiences they are, 
I was looking at my notes just for Metal Detector Maniac and so much of like the language gags. And again, like you were saying, the stream of consciousness feel to it. There's a really funny moment in Earth Mama during some of the recovery sessions where a series of women are sharing their stories and the situations they're in. And they at first it's a series of black women and then this white woman goes up there and she like begins with a smile and is like, Hi, I'm, I'm Alexis. Um, I'm from Fresno. California originally and and then it like cuts outside where Gia's best friend is just like well, it's nothing like a rambling ass white bitch to piss me off um and I was thinking about the idea of Earth Mama like seeing Metal Detector Maniac and being like rambling ass white boy shit <laughs> because so much of this movie is it, it's just riffing on one shaggy dog joke it's just rambling ass white boy crazy ass white boy stuff mm. the whole movie <laughs> and like especially the joke that they're ac- they're academics so they're playing with language and they're all constantly even interrogating the things they're saying being like is that the proper use of rife rife you know just like going over the words because they're having so much fun riffing and rambling on one idea the whole time i love the academic stuff because it also of course reinforces the the thesis the diy sort of like ethic thesis this that is at the the heart of the film because ultimately yeah the film is about the film you know more or less right but they get to then as these like slacker professors uh, sort of play the game with these these nerds in their department where they get to play like lowbrow versus highbrow. And they've got, uh, you know, all these pricks who are like, look, guys, I'm actually surprised that you got the sabbatical. Well, it is the third time we applied. Technically, we should have gotten it last year. Well, yes, that's because it's usually reserved for serious research projects or gifted artists published poets, the like. Well, we didn't give you a hard time when you went to Europe for that loot project. Yeah, we don't discriminate against lutenists. I prefer lutist. Wow, you guys are just like makeup bullshit. Like that's not art or whatever. And then they get to go like, oh yeah, you know, like check this out. But really check this out is look at this film that we made in our backyard, right? So yeah, uh, I love when they like call out like university publishing too, you know? Yeah. Like that, I like cracked up at that because the guy's like, is this going to be published anywhere? And he's like, well, what the hell is university publishing anyway? And right? you force your students to buy your books and he's like looking at the one guy. <laughs> yeah. like, uh, just because I only know a little bit about these guys, I have seen Don't Let the River Beast Get You, but are any of these dudes like actually like adjunct professors anywhere or is this just no. a big gag all around this no, is a big yeah. okay a big law got it that makes more sense <laughs> i mean i yeah I, I figured but i wasn't sure i'm like oh it d- does one of them like is that part of their day job they teach something because it feels so authentic <laughs> yeah, I yeah how i i even like you know as an academic like right hillary hillary my girlfriend who was watching it with me today she was just like is this what your little meetings are like too and i was like uh Pretty much, yeah, you know, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Because isn't so, but like how how Matt makes money is he's like an algorithm. He plays the algorithm. He like writes a bunch of music. Isn't is like is yeah, that what you like said? A million songs. Yeah. Right. yeah, I think I read he's got twenty two thousand songs that he's he's uh, published. Right, and yeah, you know they are from what I understand, and I I actually 
didn't even realize it until my girlfriend pointed it out. Like I've heard them without knowing it was him because she's played some of his poop songs. I mean, oh, his really? poop songs. Yeah, I think I read in a in a uh, a, a piece uh, I think by Will Sloan, who is you know I, I I've sort of mentioned like one of their biggest uh, critical champions out there, but like he had said something that that I think one of his poop songs alone generates him like five hundred dollars a week or something like that because wow. of how many times it gets played by like children specifically who are like, Alexa, play the poop song. And like his, (laughs) his is the one that just comes up, you know, but yeah, he's, he's made a very, I think, you know, he, he's able to supplement again, this, this kind of creativity, like through that, but, but also again, like, yeah, calling it, I mean, I think it's like calling him just a sort of like algorithm, like huckster is 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 maybe doing him a little bit of a. Oh yeah, I don't mean to disparage know. him. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, but it's true. Well, you, this is why you got to watch Local Legends because Local Legends sort of is like his his eight and a half, where it's like about him as a musician, and he explains it like, yeah, just write like Happy Birthday, and then I write like five hundred variations with different names, and then put them on you know put them online or he you know songs about states or yeah. cities or like things that but it's good work you know? yeah, i mean but that's that's what i mean you know it's like uh, it's still like you gotta admire that ability to just just go again that's that's to me like the the real like launching point we tried to warn a woman but she was not very receptive She does not understand the dangers of a metal detector maniac. Metal detector maniac. One of those loitering laws gonna come into effect. That's to me like the the real like launching point, the real like heart of this film is, is in the opening when we open on their, their, their summer songwriting session with their students. And you have this student uh, who's just sort of sitting there like kind of improvising a song. And then they, 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 they talk about the, the, the ethos of, of their group of the, the summer songwriting session and, and creativity, which is, just go, just do it. Don't think about it. Just, just the, the minute you start to yeah. think about it, you're going to encounter blockages, you know, just let it flow, find inspiration wherever it carries you look for it in the world in in everything that you see. And, and you'll be surprised like what, what joy can, can come from that. And then that's essentially the movie is just them doing that and, and finding that creativity from the the daily newspaper from you know the the metal detector maniacs self-published book of poetry from the guy pissing down by the river yes skizzy the the eccentric local man who invites everyone to piss in the creek with him or or even just like calling the cops for a little, <laughs> a little inspiration you know it's like again that's what i mean by inspiring it's like doesn't matter if the words don't rhyme whether you're able to keep in time just let out what's on your mind professors farley and scalzo have made sure that we all know not to break our creative flow 
in their garage. In the heat, they talked about chords and words and beats, and never to take creativity seriously. At the summer songwriting session. At the summer Someone myself who often has, has been his, his worst enemy creatively, you know, I'm someone that does overthink things to my own detriment, you know, yeah. like I'll, I'll come up with a great idea and I'll just suddenly start sniping at it. I'll, I'll think about it like an academic for a second. I'll, I'll theorize my, my, my moment of, of inspiration to the point where it's just dead on arrival, you know? And so to, to see that and to see it then like in action and, and again, not in action in a film that, you know, took four years to make, but for a couple of guys who, who really did just go and fucking do it. Like, I mean, God damn it. Like that, that's a, that's a lesson I want to carry into, into the new year, you know, a reminder of just like not letting yourself get tripped up by, by those kinds of thoughts, you know, by thinking about it too much, you know, Thinking about that as their job, both Matt Farley's job with the algorithm in real life and then also the the satire on academia, I think my favorite thing about Earth Mama was a lot of the scenes at her job. Oh, yeah. At the photo studio in the mall where she takes, like, family portraits with different backdrops and then, like, puts the photos on a CD to give out. And I was thinking, I was still kind of sitting here and thinking about what you were saying at the beginning, Marsh, about how there's there's certain access that we don't have to to what she's thinking throughout the film. And there's there's a really amazing chunk of like 15 minutes in this movie. And Brody talks a little bit about it in his piece too. I hate I hate to just keep riffing on that, but it's it's when there is the session where all the women in recovery are sharing their stories, uh, the therapy session, and Gia in particular refuses to go up there and share her story. Everyone else goes up there, talks about their situations, and when she's finally called upon, she she doesn't get up. And she doesn't even say anything. She just like kind of rejects it. Like we don't even get to hear her story. Brody in 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 his piece, he says it's like it, that is her rejecting just the entire bureaucratic system. In its essence, like to her, like there is nothing here that is is healing because the system is just it just like beats you down. And he and he says, which I also this was how I read it when I watched it is like her alternative to that is at her photo studio. She brings there's like two men who then share their stories about growing up in foster care and uh, and the damaging effect that it had on them and the way they still think about their mother because she's debating internally about, like, what am I doing here? And I thought that that was, like, a really interesting way of getting at that interiority about, like, her decision-making through, like, here she is at her job and she's got two men in front of, again, like, Brody calls her a documentarian. Like, he, there they are in front of a camera with a backdrop doing their interview for her and it almost feels like it's after hours or something. It's, like, an interesting bit, like, some details there. I remember like it was yesterday. My mom was holding me, then this car just pulled up. They had suits on. They just grabbed me out of my mom's arms. Didn't say what's going on. Just like snatched me up like I'm being like abducted or something. 
From that day forward, my life ain't been the same. In and out of foster care, different ones, you know, and just wondering what's going on, what's happening, how to go from me being my mom to total strangers. Well, that's a that's a fantastic sequence because it's also her driving, and it's like when the film becomes mm. sort of like unstuck in time as the guys then start telling their story, and it's like cutting to her in the car, cutting back to the studio, right? Um, which is really fascinating because, of course, so many of the other moments in this film are, are long-take-oriented, but as she's sort of getting to that decision, then we get uh, this, yeah, like editing unstuck in time, and I loved that sequence. And you're right. I think that, that fo- little photo studio is a very rich space, and whoever did the painted backdrops, like Gold Star, you know, like they're yeah. they're very expressive. And again, yeah, there's a lot of ways the film and the filmmaker, I think, are getting at her interiority through the things that, like we're seeing as the backdrops and like the notes that those like photo shoots play throughout her journey, right? I think yeah. those are sort of like reflective in an interesting way. But I was also really taken with uh, the, I guess you could call them set pieces, uh, I guess, throughout the film, uh, which are these big sort of epic, maybe not epic isn't the right term, but long tracking shots that happen yeah. in the film a couple times. There's the one at the playground uh, when she's really desperate and she asks her boss for an advance and we get a hard cut to her uh, on this playground in shallow focus and we hear you know all this these children playing and, and we don't really know what she's doing as we sort of follow her and then she steals some pampers from uh you know another Stroller. stroller wow yeah uh from from a from a stroller and you hear all these like white you know san francisco white people voices like miss miss you know yeah, like yelling me, at her miss. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yelling at her I'm, oh my god it's so intense though uh but that is it was, it was an amazing sequence in this unbroken build-up as it tracks uh one way and then the other and it does this a couple times throughout the film there's also the one later when uh, she goes to like this sort of party slash uh, like drag race, like dudes doing donuts uh, situation, you know, Fast and the Furious oh, kind dude. of vibe. And that's like so, yeah, I love that. So Oakland, but it's also so Chicago, of course, as we all know. But it would be in Lower Wacker if it was in Chicago, guys in the tunnels uh, spinning out. But instead, no, they're out in the bay at night, and there's this crazy long shot that follows her through a crowd of people. There's cars doing donuts in the background. Like, it's this elaborate tapestry. Uh, And then she gets into an argument with her friend and then, like, leaves, and it follows her. I mean, it goes on forever. And I thought those were handled, like, really well in an emotional way. Yeah. The the diaper one in particular was really striking because, again, it's that those those disembodied white voices, like they never catch up to her to like, you know, I was nervous that when she gets in the car that they were going to be like knocking on the window or something. Cause I was like, in reality, those people would probably be too anxious to like go up and like actually stop that woman. But that scene in particular, like 
Molly got so mad. Like she was like, I, I could feel the power of that scene because of how fired up she got. Cause so much of this movie takes this time to show you like all of these resources and people and time that, that is set up to sort of just like dehumanize you. And it's like all this stuff that goes into it. And she's like, and they can't like, they've got a woman, you know, who has to like watch you piss in a cup and then flush the toilet for you. And they can't give this girl fucking diapers. Yeah. You know, it's like all the money that goes into this. To like put you through, make you jump through all these fucking hoops, sucking up all your time, and they can't aff afford to give you diapers. Like, it makes you want to cry. Like, it makes me mad just thinking about it. It's like, for fuck's sake. And it's, I loved how they did that with that tracking shot. Like, it was just this long sequence that, like, and like where it was placed in the film, because it communicates all of that, and it's basically wordless. Yeah, we live in America. It's a fucking rotten cesspool in yeah. which, you know, you're 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 punished for for being in the position that she's in. And yeah, I think that there's a lot in this film that that impressed me and there's a lot in this film that intrigued me. And again, I I, I don't know about the Brody thing cuz I didn't read it, you know, but but uh I know certain things that Brody um gets really jazzed about and uh you know, there's a, a certain um, Bazinian quality to a lot of what's going on in this film. Uh, a lot of uh, emphasis on naturalism that then sometimes shifts into more uh, fantastic or almost, you know, magical realism moments. I feel like we've been talking about that stuff a lot lately on the pod, uh, certainly last week with, with the Icelandic film that we watched. So, so I thought that the balancing act between that, uh, was handled very well. And it's easy for some of those sequences, like where suddenly she's naked and, and wandering around through some the redwood. Yeah. The redwood forest. And it feels very primordial all of a sudden, you know, earth mama. Yeah. We're seeing, we're seeing her in action here in this moment. Sometimes that stuff can feel so like, kind of like tacked on, mm -hmm. you know, by, by filmmakers, of of lesser quality but but here like i thought it just kind of added to the overall experience that i took away which was that like you know this is a movie that i think we're meant to experience we're meant to sort of float on the surface of and to walk away with a lot of the reactions and feelings that that you just certainly expressed, Ryan, and I think that anybody with uh, a, a beating heart would would walk away from, you know, this sort of like, my God, you know, it really is like this for so many people in this this land of plenty. But yeah, you know, I, I, again, I think just overall, um, the film did surprise me and it did... Um, uh, it did make me sort of, I think, I don't want to say completely change my, my, you know, somewhat standoffish, uh, sort of, I guess, persona that I have to things that come out of 824 and things that come out of Sundance. So, so <laughs> well, I, I guess think it's yeah. important to like, <laughs> I had to keep reminding myself cause I can't remember what the situation was for this movie, but like, you know, a lot of times they buy it afterwards, right? Like they weren't involved from the beginning and I think they weren't involved from the beginning with this one. Yeah. And I don't want it to be that, you know, right. I don't want it to yeah. be that. Although, yeah. you know, I, I did learn 
an interesting th- thing from our Bay Area correspondent. Uh, they wanted to shoot this film on 35, and A24 said, no, you're shooting on 16. Oh, so A24 was involved from yes. the beginning. Yes, okay. and, and not even um, to, for cost, but for, like, PR, you know, like, oh, oh this, this no. should be shot on 16, uh, I guess, you know, um, which is interesting. But I, I do got to say the the cinematography is good. You know, I was really impressed with it. And and it's by uh, Jody Lee Lips, Lipes, Jody Lee Lipes, uh, who is a, a, a legendary millennial uh, DP who shot Girls and Manchester by the Sea and some other stuff. And I think the work here uh, is good. You know, I was really impressed uh, with that. I know, right? I knew I knew you would be upset when I told you that. Well, no, no, because this is interesting. I have like two rebuttals to things you guys both brought up. One of which is the way it looks, where I actually think it would have looked better on thirty-five. Well, um, sure. Well, but I mean, even like with what they ended up doing, it was a little bright. I thought. And I, I remembered thinking, like, oh, I wish this was, like, a little punchier, that, like, the shadows were darker. And, like, that might have looked cool on 35. That's, like, a bit arbitrary, though, because um, I did still really like the way it looked. But, like, the other thing I was thinking w- was those fantasy sequences, though. And I promise this is the last time I'm going to bring up the Brody piece. But he captured something I was feeling when I watched it where I, I didn't love the, like, the body horror, like, pulling the umbilical cord uh, out of her stomach. I mean, I didn't mind the stuff in the woods, but to me, I was a little distracted by it. And I was kind of like, ah, first feature, like we, we kind of like, we do some of this stuff and Brody, like really, he's, I think he got it so perfectly. He's like, yeah, it's one of the film's rare missteps because the, uh, quote unquote reality of this film is already extremely subjective. Like it just feels subjective. So why did we need these diversions to try and communicate a a radical subjectivity right he's like i feel like every moment of this film is a very subjective experience and i also felt that way because of the close-ups that was his whole like argument the film even opens with a a woman at one of their meetings uh, explicitly talking about like subjectivity you know but i think i think what the film is trying to do ryan and again whether or not it's successful uh is up to anyone but there, there's some sort of like thematic through line in the movie about the history of black women, history of black women in America and uh, like babies being taken from them, etc. And so it's trying to establish this like spiritual, historical kind of link. But you're right. It's like, you know whatever you know yeah no it's it's all there but again you know for a first-time filmmaker i mean this is a this is a a very impressive uh uh, debut i i i do do feel that way and a great deployment of bokeem woodbine yeah always a pleasure always a pleasure to see our guy and when he showed up as the prospective adoptive uh, father uh of her baby uh I got I got very excited and just he doesn't do much but no. just be be nice and warm, you know. I mean it took me a minute. I was like, "Hold on. We just saw him in something. Who is that?" And it's like, "Oh, of course, from life." And I mean a bunch of other stuff too, but that was what the most recent thing I saw of him. Very good to see him again. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to go back to our to our boys, I mean, and and maybe to to arbitrarily try and connect these films. I mean, I do think 
Earth Mama is very much a, a, a movie about emotions and feelings, right? More than more than anything, and how this feels. And so, in a sense, you know, that sort of subjectivity, we can go back to to Farley and, and Scalzo, who who preach a sort of intuitive uh, kind of approach. Of course. To different ends in a different milieu, certainly. But uh, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm just curious to hear like what where you guys thought the film was going uh, as you were experiencing it for the first time. <laughs> I did not expect, yeah, the 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 final, shall we say, like the final act at all. You know, I mean, and maybe that's because I'm so attuned to, you know, films, lesser films like this, where it's like, yeah, look at these idiots, you know? But that's when I, I mean, look, I loved this movie from the first five minutes, but but when I truly was like, oh, yeah, these guys are on a on a, on another level. They're on another level is is when I did get to to the conclusion. And like, yeah, I mean, like, kudos to them for for doing it. You know, I, I, look, uh, you know, to quote again, like another like piece that that probably even our listeners have have not read or whatever. But like Will Sloan in in a, um, an article he 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 had written about a, a different film of theirs. You know, he he made some point about how the term Lynchian gets thrown around all too often. It gets like very abused and like you know, and we've talked about it before. You know, now it is like if any movie is slightly weird in any way there's so many people who will jump up and be like it's lynchian but i think like he applied it to them and and in in some of their work and and in a way that i think is like really appropriate in that you know if you look at something like a, a, a movie that after reading this that i was like reflecting on that has a kind of similar sort of journey and progression it's blue velvet blue velvet you know <laughs> like the idea is like you know like oh look at this this nice pleasant place and let's like let's now go look at the the, the very seedy twisty <laughs> twisted like underbelly of of suburban america like yeah i mean like that's what this film certainly does and in, in where it goes and like yeah to to as ryan has already said like to to make all of their 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 ridiculous buffoonish paranoia completely true is 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 the great coup of of the film yeah i mean so when i was watching it i was certain that the metal detector maniac like was a bad guy that this like after about 30 minutes i'm like this dude is like a criminal like there is something like i knew the payoff in some capacity would be that like something bad was going on. However, what I was not at all expecting was that every single word that came out of their mouth and all of their theories the whole time would prove to be like a hundred percent the truth. <laughs> like yeah. that, that was the, the stroke of brilliance for me. Like I just assumed the idea would be that they were like, they were like onto something like they caught the scent, but we're just like going at it in the totally wrong direction. I assumed maybe there would be something much grander, or that there was like some other conspiracy that they were, it was just all misdirection. And the fact that it was delivered verbatim, which is then I would say a little bit of a counter to the idea of the Lynchian thing with this individual film, just because 
one thing I love so much about it was that there's no room for ambiguity. It's like nothing that came before the first 30 minutes is like a mystery by the end <laughs> because it's it's everything they thought was going on and it's like all spelled out. I mean, sure, maybe there's like a little ambiguity of just like why, but in terms of what is happening, <laughs> it's all I mean, all I think that's happening. a very Lynchian question, right? Like, why? Yeah, I mean, because look, there are some unanswered questions, you know? Was was Councilman McGee really in on yeah. everything? What happened you know? to the town medallion? Yeah, what happened to the town medallion? Oh, that's medallion? true. You know what? That's true, because they do have theories about that, and that's not confirmed. One thing that I was really honing in on watching this that I had not thought about in the previous films I'd seen is the connection to Ishtar. Now, for me... Oh, mm, God, yeah. Like, the opening of Ishtar is one of the great sequences in cinema when they're just coming up with bullshit. Yeah. And it's super funny. And they're just singing about what's around them. And of course, in the context of Ishtar, it's like, boy, these guys are terrible. But why Ishtar is awesome is because it's not terrible. It's awesome. And these guys are being really funny. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be... Tell, 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 telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, you've got bitter black life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. And this sort of works on a similar register. And I was sort of looking at them throughout this film, like the guys from Ishtar. And in a sense, you can also then like look at the film as a concept album, which is ultimately what's presented at as their like thesis of yeah, their the sabbatical, sabbatical defense. Yeah. The, the sabbatical defense. Their confession. <laughs> which dude. is also their confession uh, to multiple crimes. Every word is true. <laughs> well, enough preamble, folks. Now, without further ado, we present to you our masterpiece, Metal, Metal Detector, Detector Maniac. Citizen Sleuths. Calling, tis not a surprise. A warm golden welcome is on display. He's on to us. He bought our CDs at the video game store. He's on to us. What was a playful skirmish is now an all out war. He's on to us. Oh, yeah, you bet. He's on to us. Oh, yeah, you bet. He's on to us. So it's, yeah, it's also a, a concept album where, yeah, they're they're taking the mundane and, and mixing it with their lives. And, and yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> it's amazing. 
amazing. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good time. It's yeah. amazing, dude. I mean, yeah, it's it is like absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that yes, it's all true is is the beauty, the 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 grand beauty of it. I mean, again, it it speaks to so many things that are are deficient to me in you know bigger budgeted hollywood movies where again it's like there there has to be this sense of like reassurance even in thriller films even in noir films you know uh, and this movie like doesn't doesn't have to be beholden to any of that you know this doesn't have to comfort people this doesn't have to please people this doesn't have to to uh give people what they you know are are trained to expect from films but it can can sort of twist all that around reject it and and then yeah make it all the 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 grand punchline of the entire film which is also that in spite of the fact that yes they do confess to their crimes including murdering the metal detector maniac and and really just deciding that they're going to do it it's not even that they're they're necessarily too threatened by him i mean they they choose to to throw him off agony ridge like the side of a cliff they, yeah you know? they were expecting a knife to come out of the metal detector you know yeah well but, it does you know, yeah i mean it was I, I can't believe they never take the self-defense route they just take the righteousness route the right exactly i mean that's <laughs> yeah. it you know it's like you know in a hollywood film you'd have to be like oh well that the they had no choice the point is that they had a choice yeah. And they chose violence. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, as you've said, they, no jury will convict them. Yeah, they are so sure that no jury will convict them. And even when they are convicted by, by the jury of their peers, they, their final act is to sing how they regret nothing, you know, and that they've been rewarded by it. You know, the, the publicity of, of their act of, of murder has made them like, yeah, huge celebrities in America. Like, I mean, it's so defiant and they are such fucking clowns. You know, again, you, you, if you want to, again, like compare the two films, right? Like, or, or talk about something in just the, the idea of the central characters, like, yeah, in, in, in Earth Mama, it's like we, we have this character who, in spite of the fact that she makes bad choices and we see her make bad choices and, and these choices are products of like the horrible system we have in America, like we are, we are meant to empathize with her to the best of our abilities. And throughout Metal Detector Maniac, I mean... It's like, these guys are despicable, you know? Yeah, they're they're funny, and there's a certain, like, shaggy dog charm, but they're like, they have nothing but contempt for the world that they live in and, and just trip into uh, good fortune by the end of the film. Like, we should hate these guys, but... But God damn it, like, how can you? You got to at least admire them. I mean, what a what a statement for Trump's right. America, right? It's like, it's these guys, like, literally killing some fucking guy and just being like, yeah, we'll do it again if we had the chance. <laughs> God, I mean, you just, you mentioning the decisions, like, I, got, I just got to get it out. Like, watching Earth Mama and, like, the quote-unquote climax of that movie... Yeah, after that scene with the donuts, she runs home totally emotionally, emotionally overwhelmed and like shredded, and she just goes straight to the crack pipe. 
And then you're just like, oh, fuck. And then, <laughs> like, it just keeps doubling down. Like, it's almost, like, it's so cruel that it's, like, almost a little funny. Like, I hate to say it, but it's, like, when she wakes up and her water broke, it's just, like, oh, dear God. You know, yeah. like, think about, like, worst case scenario for this whole film. Like, what's, like, the worst place it could end up for her after everything she's gone through is, like, the crack sending her baby out. You know, and then her phone only having four cents left when she tries to call for an ambulance. You know, it's just like cataclysmic. And this is, I think, the moment that um, helped me uh, appreciate the film a lot more. And not Mm -hmm. in the sense that it was this, this like extremely overblown moment of drama, but that it was able to cement a lot of the ideas of the film and the spirit of the film in a very small act, Uh, uh, an act that certainly like her, her social worker, like, you know, berates her about in terms of like, you know, like this was bad. This was wrong. This was, this was child abuse as well. Like, look, you got to really understand like how, how bad the thing that you did was, but like, again, like taking a step back from it, like it shows you the, the knife's edge, the tightrope that people in her position are, are, are on constantly that, that one small, seemingly inconsequential, like choice in one instant can have such, uh, massive, massive, uh, ramifications on your entire existence, everything that you go through. There's so many like dramas that are similar to this in a certain like mission or spirit where I feel like suddenly they're like, okay, how do we end the film? Okay. Something really big needs to happen. We need to build to a very like, you know, a crescendo of drama. And this kind of goes in the opposite direction where uh, things kind of just sort of, uh, you know, fade out into sadness and, and you know, a, a really sort of like bitter, a, a bittersweet, I would say, in this case. And for, for her, um, because there is hope, like the, 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 the film does end with, with hope, but like, again, it didn't have to be this, this kind of like lifetime movie sense of like, oh, now you went there suddenly to just try to put a bow on all this. Like, no, it was, uh, it was just like you said, it was like one hit on this, you know, this pipe and, and then disaster you know, disaster. There wasn't like a big shootout or, or someone dying or anything like that. It was like, God damn, like, man, you, you really have no leeway in this world so much so that this one thing can, can ruin you. Yeah. I mean, I remember I just like, when it happened, I like <laughs> looked at Molly and I was like, I mean, this has to just be like worst case scenario possibly for like just everything she had been working towards this whole time. And she's like, Molly just said, like, that is a, like, you can't even hold the baby offense, like, in most situations. Like, if you show up to the hospital like that. And I, and I was, like, nice that the film actually didn't force us to endure something like that. Because that almost would feel kind of sensationalistic within the context of it. Like, they don't even let her touch the kid. Yeah. And so, right. I mean, it's like, 
still so much is unresolved that yeah it, it can only be uh yeah mostly bitter but yes the you know you got bokeem woodbine in there so like it's cool and you got the the teenage daughter who plays basketball which actually connects the movies basketball connects these films because there's actually talk between gia and her friend about how they used to ball and her friend it sounds like played like college or like almost went pro or something uh and then there's like a little talk about basketball and then of course in metal detector maniac we have the many one-on-one games between (laughs) farley and scalzo where uh in the sort of like tradition of our childhood certainly andy like pretending to be uh 80s 90 90s stars in their one-on-one games we got starks and because of uh skizzy's input havlicek yeah (laughs) starks versus havlicek yeah dude just the weirdest shit ever so again you know these movies not as different as you'd think no i mean because like metal detector ends with hope as well they they may have been thrown in the slammer but they're like hey now we got more time to write songs together that's right. Just like Charles Manson. Yeah. <laughs> Closer than ever. I what's the name of the the buddy? The not Matt Farley, what Tom? Tom Scalzo. Tom Scalzo. Yeah. Tom Scalzo. I kept I was trying to like put my finger on. I'm like like what is he? Like who is he? Like what am I thinking about while watching it? And I'm like, oh, it's Jason from home movies. It's like oh. the friend. Do you, do yeah. you see it a little bit? And I, I was like, because I was trying to like get what his bit was. And I was like, I like it, but I'm like one step removed. And then it clicked for me. And then I like was so endeared by him throughout yeah. the rest of it. He's a classic sidekick. You know? Classic. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at my notes. I have, there's just so many things in this movie that made me laugh so much. I mean, my favorite little ditty they sing is the. He's an odd duck, quack, 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 quack. He's an oh, odd yeah. duck. Really like that one a lot. I think my favorite line of the whole movie is when they're talking about how the metal detector maniac like doesn't have any trash outside and there's like all these suspicious things and they're like, and look at his lawn. Like his lawn is a mess. And then my favorite line is Matt Farley going, full disclosure, my lawn's looking pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, these New Hampshire guys in their sleepy bedroom town. <laughs> yeah. What am I... I mean, again, look, like, yeah, this this was, again, another movie where I gave up, like, writing notes at a certain point because literally every line was was something There's that... There's something, yeah. Yeah, was, was worthy of, like, taking note of because, yeah, it's just... It is constant, and and you know how much of it is written and how much of it is improvised. I don't really fully know, uh, but I mean, obviously, I I know that there's a lot that that gets scripted. But I certainly think sometimes in their banter, uh, because they have a a creative partnership even outside the film, I think Scalzo is one of his big musical collaborators you know you can see the fun he's cracking up during some of the songs because he's clearly just like making up the song yeah you can see scalzo like breaking across from him yeah they're in they're, a few moments they're riffing and again it's it's part of the 
the the charm of the film that they leave in so many of those moments where people are breaking, where they are laughing at how ridiculous the the situation is and what yeah. they're doing and saying. I mean, like like anything you know that is 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 ridiculous and absurd. There's there's often a, like a kernel of truth to be found in it. And one of the moments that I I loved in the film is is when um, you know Farley in his paranoia. And, and in his suspicion that the metal detector maniac has access to his home, um, he hires a locksmith to, to change the locks. And then he has a conversation with the locksmith about how easy it is to just get into somebody's house. Uh, tell me, uh, do you have some kind of like locksmith code that prevents you from just making your own copy of my house keys? No, but there's really no need. I can get into 99% of locks with just a skeleton key. And then he's having a, a conversation with his wife later where she's like, well, you go lock the doors. He's like, after today, what's the point? Right. <laughs> I, <love laughs> <that>. <laughs> I mean, what I, with what I learned, like, why bother? I mean, it's, it's fucking so hilarious, man. It's so hilarious. Yeah. To say nothing of the feisty twins in the basement, you know? Oh, that, my God. I, I think that was actually my favorite song. And, and the way it was handled in the film, where it's just kind of in the background when they go to the public access show and, and the guy's like, tell me about the title of this song. She's less afraid of him than she is of us or whatever, <laughs> because they keep trying to alert the jogger about the, the presence of the metal detector maniac. And she's always fleeing from these annoying creeps playing basketball. God. Yeah. One moment that hit really hard for me because they seem to have a great line for just about everything. They always have some sort of snarky remark that they can toss back is when they're talking to the plain clothes police officers for the second time and they're grilling the two of them. Like Matt and Tom are just sitting in their garage and the plain clothesman says like stick to making mediocre music. Oh, have you listened to our stuff? I've jumped to the conclusion that is mediocre. And it cuts to Matt, and they're just like, he's just like staring at him. Like he doesn't have a line. He's just like angry. Like it's the one time his character like lets it he gets the he gets cut, you know, it bleeds. <laughs> yeah. Or when the cop points out that they uh, record in their garage, you know, they're they're a fake band or whatever, and he's like, Wow. We record in the basement, but it's the same basic idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, look, this is uh, this did not disappoint. I mean, again, the idea this week was like something you've been meaning to see and and I I had many people who who I respect uh out there in the film community saying check these guys out and it did not disappoint. My 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 only regret is that I have not done it sooner and i'm certainly very excited to get in and and continue to support these guys because look i mean they're a they're a uh, self-published group which again is a big part of the joke throughout the film is always like talking about self-publishing and and it's like yeah i want to support these guys i want to go give them money to keep doing these kinds of things because goddamn even if it is you know the same act the same people the same fucking locations over and over again like i'll i'll take what they're serving because it was just such a such a, a rich experience i i was really 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 taken by it all yeah i mean i i think i i see what people mean 
when they say uh, it like has Hong qualities. You know, I was dismissive yeah. of that idea at first, and now I, I do feel like I see it. Yeah, um, they're they're doing it. They're doing you it. Know? They're doing it. Well, yeah. I mean, I would normally ask you, Marsh, what new movie you liked, but we kind of did that already. <laughs> yeah, uh, one more that I didn't uh, say earlier: uh, Bill Morrison's Incident. Oh yeah, which I got to see recently. Chicago Alert. Uh, it is a found footage film from body cams and surveillance cameras about the CPD murder of Harith Augustus in 2018 in South Shore. Uh, it's 30 minutes. It's infuriating. It's a split screen panopticon nightmare snuff film, but an essential document, fascinating work of, of cinema. Uh, and it's extremely upsetting. Uh, and in that sense, I, I loved it. it. It's really powerful. Uh, so when, if and when and wherever that will be available, I don't know. Um, but you should check it out or whatever. Because, uh, whoo, yeah, not good, folks. Um, yeah, yeah, wow, cool. Um, <laughs> next week will be in 2024. Andy will be ringing in the new year with his topic. What do you have for us? So as I've mentioned uh, a lot recently, I've been putting uh, together a, a, a class that I'm going to be teaching next quarter on spaghetti westerns. Um, now, we've already done spaghetti westerns on the podcast, so no worries. We're not doing volume two. I've watched plenty. I don't need to watch uh, any more. There's, there's nothing either of you could bring me right now that I haven't <laughs> watched or put on my watch list in that area. But it's led me to sort of amusing um, sort of <laughs> areas of inquiry and in doing a deep dive into the Italian film studios of the 50s, the 60s, and yes, even the 70s. And, and something that I've been getting uh, very amused by um, is, you know, reading all these various stories of of American actors and, and, and European actors, people from all over the world who were lured to Italy by money, by opportunities for advancement, you know, or just, just people recommending, Hey, you know, get over there to Italy and, and, and make some pictures with them. If you're, you're struggling in Hollywood, here's an opportunity to, to become a star. And some actors had great experiences and some actors uh, did not. Some were completely at sea over there in Chinachita. So I thought it was sort of an amusing topic out of this this subject and I'm 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 struggling a little bit with with how to quite put it so we're going to be sort of thinking as we go here but but what I want are for you to bring me films where an actor is very clearly out of their comfort zone. I'm looking for a fish out of water. This could be a foreign actor suddenly appearing in a national cinema that they're not used to. This could be someone who's been typecast completely breaking from that screen persona they've built. But I want us to, to examine the experience of an actor 
far from their home base next week. So bring me films that are going to feature someone either either having a good experience or potentially a very bad experience doing something they don't normally do. So let's have some fish out of water next week. Wow. Yeah. All right. We'll take a dip. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and you can send emails to gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I don't want my kids going through what I've been through, what I'm going through right now. They deserve to see me more than once a week, more than for an hour. Look, I'm committed to my kids. I've shown you that. And although you might not believe that I'm fit to parent them right now, no matter what, I'll always be their mama. No jury in America could possibly convict us of any crime. Yeah, the girls originally agreed to tell the police they got away on their own. But, you know, once the dust settled, we figured it'd be okay to tell the whole story in our songs. Because, as you know, incorporating everything is the key to our artistic ethos. Okay, that's all we're going to need right there. Thomas Galzo, Matthew Farley, you're both under arrest for the murder of Arthur J. Wheatenhauer.